Welcome back or welcome to another On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Marcus. John, what is going on, my man? Man, it's my favorite time. It's my absolute favorite time because you know what it is. It's time to give the people what they want. Let's go. All right. Another exciting On Coaching Podcast. Before we get to that, you know what's coming. It is our plug. Our plug for ourselves. Why? Because, you know what? We decided not to take advertising dollars for a while because we are so excited about our Scholar program, which just keeps humming along with all sorts of great resources. We are currently in our Canovathon, which you might have heard about. But just to go into the details, what do you get? Every week, you get about three articles or videos or podcasts on Canova's training, some written by the man himself. And then every week you get at least three full training programs, full training programs of athletes that he's coached. He's so graciously given that over to us. And we've got that. We've organized it. It's all ready to go. So if you want to learn from one of the great modern coaches, come on in. And that's not all you get. You get you get a course on the history of training, on training for different events, on the psychology of running. Oh, man, it's just so much stuff. So if you haven't yet, check it out. It is, a, it is the best resource for distance coaches on the planet. Yes, if you're tired of piecemealing your education and finding a training, you know, plan for three weeks here, you know, looking for a YouTube video on a course, you know, clinic talk there. What we aim to do is essentially become a clearinghouse and organize it all under one roof. So we take the guesswork and the search work out of it. And for, you know, an easy dollar a day, essentially, that is that is the rock bottom price we ask is for a dollar a day, you get this buffet, go at your own pace, uh, menu of all things distance running, science, history, contemporary, you name it. It's pretty phenomenal. So, and again, we keep it at a dollar a day because, you know, like it's less than a cup of coffee, you know, less than half a gallon of gas, less than a carton of eggs, less than a carton of milk. Like, <laughs> It's a screaming deal. It's a screaming bargain. Sign up. Nourish your mind. Um, that's what it is. That's what that's what John is saying. Um, so, all right. Check out the Scholar Program. Let's dive into today's topic. Oh, this one's going to be good because this is one I think so many coaches and athletes have faced and struggled with and don't know or have questions on how to approach. All right. What is it? Performance turnaround. How to get your racing back on track. So this one's interesting, John, because I think, we, as you just said, it's something we all face, right? No matter the planning, no matter you know how much time or energy we sit there and try and periodize everything out and get it all right, um, every once in a while, you face, or probably every season, I would say, if you're a high school or college coach, you face an athlete or several whose racing starts to go in the wrong direction, right? 
And it's almost like you coaches often panic and freak out. They're like, well, do I stick to the plan? Everything's supposed to be working. I don't understand what's going on. Like this athlete isn't racing well. They, they're headed towards a rut. What in the world do we do? Or do we just kind of abandon the plan and change things? And, and what does that change mean? And if you've been around in this coaching game long enough, I guarantee you one of the things that you, you start to do is you start calling around your coaching buddies and being like, okay, I've got this athlete who's just in a slump. What do I do? And undoubtedly, you get all sorts of different advice because I've done this myself. Some will say, ah, oh, just keep going. Some will say, oh man, you got to change the workouts. You got to add this component in, you know, go, go get anaerobic work in. Some will say, oh no, back off. Easy, nothing but easy jogging for a week like that. That's your solution. And there's all sorts of these different, I don't know, solutions or tactics taken by coaches. And we're going to kind of dive into what what we should actually do. Yeah, it, and it's easy too, I think, Steve, to always look at redistribution, redistribution or recalibration um, of the work. And that's tends to be our first impulse is like, What's missing in the work or what do we need to, uh, you know, take away and subtract in the workload? And we, we, as coaches, are always thinking about that workload. When in reality, it actually might be more systemic outside of practice, right? Those other 22 hours, they're not an athlete running specifically. Those are in direct importance and uh, contribution to how someone's performing. And so doing a needs analysis of what's going on outside that time you see the athlete, how is their rest profile, right, looking? How is their nourishment profile looking? What's going on in, in, those, in areas of demands that they have from either social demands, work demands, school demands? You know, it might not be like one big outlying factor, but it might be a culmination of a lot of those little things just adding up to a tipping point that then creates a, you know, more of a sympathetic mindset where they feel like, okay, they're working at practice hard, they're working at school hard or work hard, their relationships are going through a rocky period, they, you know, feel stressed out, like they have no time, so they're just on to one after another accountability, checking the boxes off, but yet they forget the most important thing, which is like, um, adequate nutrient uh, delivery and timing, adequate sleep. And even though they're getting a lot done in the day, they're not able to absorb what they do. And you, nine times out of 10, that's what I find is actually the um, dominant uh, influence for athletes who have done the work, who have consistently prepared, who are ready to go um, from a preparation standpoint, but then lack the ability to um, express it on race day. You know, it's interesting, John. Um, it makes complete sense where you're just like, wait, wait, let's step back and take an inv in inventory of what we need to do and what might be going wrong. But you're right. So often we jump straight to the training. And I think that shows like our bias as coaches in the sense that it's like, oh, What's wrong? The training, the X's and O's. And the reason we tend to do that is because, you know, as distance coaches, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, is our 
our knowledge base, our coaching education is biased towards the physiology, which is biased towards the workout creation and development. No different in, you know, actual strength and conditioning. They're biased towards the same thing and turn only towards strength um, gains and physiology around that. But for whatever reason, in distance coaching, we're biased towards that. So when things go right or they go wrong, right. yeah. we push towards that, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's no one, you know, it's the same when someone's killing it and, you know, running out of their mind. What do we do? Oh, man, I need to look at that person's training, right? What are the secret workouts, key workouts that they're doing that are allowing them to take that next step? It's never the stuff around. So I think that's a, a good point is, okay, if you have someone interrupt, step back. Don't go straight towards your bias, which is training, and do this analysis of what else is going on in their life, what else is going on in their nutrition, their recovery, even their mindset towards things, um, and start with that. Because that gives you a more complete picture and gives you an idea of where you might need to go after that. Yeah, that holistic approach is, again, I think the missing link. But it's so tough, right? Because how do you measure the you know um, non-sport or non-athletic uh, inventory items, right? How do you measure stress? How do you measure quality of sleep, consistency of sleep? Yeah, there's heuristics out there, right? Like having consistent sleep hygiene, giving yourself... Um, you know, eight to nine hour window that you allot for rest and sleep. But then too, it's also looking at really common errors people make with those key um, recovery modalities. So sleep, for example, is one where I find a lot of people, you know, coaches included, um, but athletes as well, make a lot of errors regarding sleep in terms of um, caffeine intake and alcohol intake and timing of um, the metabolism horizons that those athletes and um, coaches are unaware of. So like for caffeine, we know it has a half-life of about five to seven hours, depending on your sensitivity rate, um, depending on how frequently you ingest it um, and, you know, and your tolerance rate. So think about this for a second. If I am feeling like I'm lagging or I have a big workout coming up in the afternoon, uh, let's say at four o'clock. And we all know that if you take caffeine, it, you know, makes, uh, increase your VO2 max. It makes the perception of effort seem easier. You know, you basically get a little boost, a performance boost, right? Um, but if I take 200 milligrams of caffeine at four o'clock in the afternoon, well, at about 10 o'clock, if I'm scheduled to go to sleep at 10 o'clock, I still have hundred milligrams of caffeine floating around in my body. What that does is it tricks the brain into thinking it doesn't need rest. It, it's overriding that what they you know what they call sleep pressure that builds up uh, throughout the day. So you're 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 awake. You're in bed and you're getting frustrated. Why can't I sleep? I'm awake. And it's just that's how long the body takes to metabolize this commonly used psychedelic pharmaceutical drug that is caffeine. So you know you have to know each. Uh, athlete has to know their sensitivity to caffeine and when and where to use and not use. So like for myself, I have a hard stop, no caffeine for me after like one o'clock. And because I found like if I have any caffeine after one o'clock, my sleep quality substantially declines. The other big one's alcohol, right? Alcohol, 
again, is a sedative and it interrupts sleep. It interrupts REM sleep, the most important part of it. So even if you, you know, the worst thing you can do is have a nightcap or even, you know, um, a serving or two servings is, you know, of alcohol at um, night with dinner, because that has a very similar metabolism horizon about depending on the volume and quantity of alcohol you have. Um, but let's just say you have one serving, a glass of wine, a beer, it can be anywhere from four to eight hours to fully metabolize. But it, what it does is it tricks the brain um, by putting chemicals, the you know different chemical receptors on there. I won't get too deep into it. Um, but it doesn't allow us to go into full REM sleep. So then you do are passed out. You're kind of like unconscious in that night's sleep, but your sleep is not uh, well rested. And then what happens is you wake up and then you immediately then, you know, get in this nasty cycle, which is very common for people dosing caffeine throughout the whole day from wake up till about like early mid afternoon. And then, you know, having to relax or quote unquote unwind a beer or a glass of wine. The best thing to do with alcohol and caffeine is, you know, people are going to laugh at this is actually day drink. Like if you want to have a glass of wine, have it with lunch, right? Have it at, um, at that time because it gives you enough time for your body to fully metabolize it. And then this cycle just perpetuates and perpetuates and, oh Lord, you know, forget it if a, you know, an athlete, a student athlete is stressed out and has a rockstar energy drink at 10 o'clock at night to, you know, help them stay awake to <laughs> cram or, um, you know, do their problem sets or write a paper. They've thrown everything off haywire for, you know, at least, you know, a good week or two. So a lot of times it's that dialogue um, and that awareness of those chemical metabolization horizons that is a big performance limitant in a lot of uh, highly committed um, you know, overscheduled athletes that compete in this day and age. And you can get away with that for a little while, but as someone who has inadvertently been in that cycle, you do just start to feel very run down and fatigued and just have no popper energy whatsoever on your day to day without, um, in ingesting higher and higher doses of these drugs, uh, specifically caffeine and your body becomes hooked and addicted. So one athlete I had, we had this dialogue and we discovered, whoa, you're you know dosing a lot of caffeine and then having a glass of wine or two at night to like relax so you can like wind down, right? But you're perpetuating this cycle of lack of sleep and lack of quality sleep. And that's the, the limiting factor. And then we got her off of those, um, you know, uh, off those drugs, so to speak. And in about three weeks, Boom, performance just went through the roof. Why? She was getting finally deep, restful, um, consistent, high quality sleep. And the body and the brain had time to uh, repair and also rebound more adequately than in that nasty caffeine alcohol uh, dosing cycle that she inadvertently was in. Yeah, you know, you bring up a lot of good uh, points and advice there on, on sleep, which is probably one of the most uh i don't want to say it's underrated or underappreciated because i think you know with recent books and research like people understand the value of sleep but i would say it's one of the underutilized in terms of taking advantage of it 
right? Because the the common reaction is, oh, I'll just get more sleep. Like that's what I need to do. Um, but that's akin to just telling yourself, oh, I'm just gonna like relax more, right? Without having any sort of idea or um you know plan for it. So sleep is interesting and in addition to in addition to caffeine and alcohol which you just talked about so much of it is tied to when your kind of stress hormones like cortisol are released, right? Um and you generally and people think stress hormone they're like, "Oh bad, no, stress hormone like cortisol gets you prepared." for the day yeah your cortisol releases when you wake up it helps you wake up yeah exactly and what happens a lot of times is those who struggle with sleep um that cortisol response is delayed so you don't get that that wake-up effect you get it delayed which then inhibits your sleep later on because you've thrown off your whole kind of circadian rhythm there um so one of the best things you can actually do if you're struggling with sleep is get up in the morning Go outside and be in the sun, right? Because the sun helps reset like when that kind of cortisol release uh, uh, occurs. So there's all sorts of the point is there's all sorts of little tips and tricks here that we can talk about and discuss. But I think number one, when you're looking at, okay, if if our performance is wrong or going in the wrong direction, Let's maximize the recovery standpoint of it, maximize the repair standpoint of it, because that's how we get on the right side of things. As we've talked about numerous times in this podcast, sleep is where not only your recovery hormones in terms of HGH and even testosterone get primed to help you repair, recover so you can get back on the track. But it's also where when learning largely consolidates. So from an intellectual standpoint or from a motor skill standpoint, it's when it occurs. So if we can maximize those things, we can get you back in a good spot in that stress recovery or that fatigue fitness state that will allow you to perform. Yes. And that's and this is a key thing. There typically are two types of distance runners that are, you know, of the uninjured variety, there is the fit and fatigue distance runner and the fit and fresh distance runner. So if you've done all your preparation work or had high compliance and had a good like chunk of training several months, and for some reason now performance is not happening, and it's like you look back at all the work, you're unfit. And well, the question is, are you fit and fatigued or are you fit and fresh? And most times, again, this goes back to the narrative that we're discussing right now is you're fit and fatigued and work or more work or different work or any type of work must be a bedfellow to recovery, right? The, you know, Steve's, uh, you know, first book with Brad, um, remind me the title of that. Oh yeah, that one. Yes. Yes. Peak performance. And that was the whole idea of the equation, right? Stress plus rest equals growth. Um, but without the, you know, wedding of work to rest or work to recovery. So every time you do some type of new novel type work or highly stimulating work in training as a coach, you need to be anticipating and, um, creating recovery horizons that are the second part of the workout, so to speak. So when we're done with the session, whatever it is, 
sprints, hard VO2 max stuff, uh, you know, high load, long volume work. That's only for part one. It's we're not done. The workout's not over. Now you need to anticipate those recovery horizons for that athlete, not just based on what they did in practice, but their lifestyle. And that I think is what Steve and I are talking about is having really intelligent conversations with athletes about their lifestyle and then giving them um, pointers and also giving them thresholds to try to meet uh, in their lifestyle to help advance and enhance their fitness. And then also too their relative rate of fatigue or freshness. Yep, exactly. It's balancing that component out, which I think is why a lot of people, when they say, Oh, okay, we need to back off and recover to get this athlete in the right place or back off. They look at the stress and they take the, um, take the training down to, you know, easy runs or whatever have you they're affecting that part of that equation or that component but the 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 problem here is this is whenever you're looking at okay let's dive into the training a little bit whenever you're looking at the stress and fatigue or the fitness and fatigue you have to remember that if you take away too much of the stress, the body over kind of overreacts and says, oh, we're in recovery mode. Like, we don't need this stuff. Yep, it's, it, it swings the opposite side of the spectrum. Yep. <laughs> so the, 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 well, the idea of, okay, let's take all the training stimulus away is makes sense in theory or in, you know, on a simplistic terms what tends what can often happen is we take that stress away and all of a sudden our our fitness you know reaches this detraining state so what you're actually doing is balancing this you're saying okay if we're in us we're in a rut and we're trying to get out of it we need to boost the recovery side sleep all that stuff and then we need to do enough in these different parameters on the stress side so that we don't detrain, right? So that we don't lose that fitness component so that like once the recovery catches up, then we are still in a place where we can express the training and fitness and ability to race that we've built up. Exactly, and that's where you as a coach have to know your athlete individually and understand what type of work or stimulus do they have the highest sensitivity to? Meaning what type of work or training um, kind of really sets them back that they view as high alert or high stress, right? So some athletes, some runners might have a really high sensitivity to uh, that kind of neural type fast speed all out work, right? Or the weight room, what have you, because it's so new in their programming um, they just aren't habituated to it. The invert might be for other athletes, volume of training, right? That load, that training load might be the high sensitivity. So in the supercompensation, um, you know, peaking or training model, what is common is what Steve talked about. Just reduce all load, reduce all stress, but then you feel, then you're flat, right? In the two-factor model, which is a little better model because it considers this fatigue fitness um, relationship is you want to then reduce the uh, stimulants that are of highest sensitivity to that athlete. For some athletes, that might be less hard running or less type of 
neural running or VO2 max running, but maintaining their overall training volume and supplementing it with, you know, relaxed or easy running. For other athletes, it might be exactly the flip-flop. Reduce the overall training volume by shortening the easy and recovery runs, but maintaining the kind of, um, you know, high intensity stimulants because they respond really well to that and that makes them feel fresh and peppy. And so as a coach, it's really, you know, and as a person, it's really easy just to think in that kind of like blanket terms and just say, all right, we don't know what's going on. So we're just going to turn off all the lights in the house. But when you do that, it's going to be very hard to navigate through the house. And you're probably going to cause, like Steve said, more harm than good. Exactly. It's balancing those things out. So, okay. Let's dive in. I know we talked at the beginning, okay, coaches bias towards training. Let's talk about it a little bit. Yes, you, let's talk about that. You, you hinted at it there, which is this idea of this volume and intensity and specific kinds of intensity um, work. Let's talk about what happens. And what I'm going to say is that each athlete has different sensitivity levels to different kinds of training. And we know this intuitively, right? We sit there and be like, oh, with our eight, our 400, 800 athlete, if we increase volume too much, like even just a little bit, all of a sudden they feel flat, right? And we know this with marathoners on the other end of the spectrum of like, oh, if we decrease volume or frequency of that volume uh, too quickly, what happens? They feel like they're not doing anything and they start feeling flat. So you have opposite effects for increasing and decreasing volume dependent on the athlete that you're working with. So when we're looking at, okay, we've got an athlete in the rut, what do we need to do in terms of intensity and volume? Sometimes like you'll have a drop in intensity. Sometimes you'll have a drop in volume. Sometimes you might even increase the intensity to get them out of the rut. It, my claim is that it depends on what the athlete is bringing to you and what their sensitivity, both in a positive and negative direction is to the training stimulus. And that, that is again, where knowing your athlete is super key. And then also too. Sometimes not getting too greedy, right? Um, and for some athletes, it's it actually just might be a, a blend of both, like a, a backing off of both the um, intensity of work, the load of work, and to the density and frequency of work, right? Um, and those are all hard to navigate. And you say, well, how much volume should they do? Or how many reps should they do? Uh, you know, again, that's where every situation is dependent. And if we think about two let's say from a training standpoint, you decide that you actually need to go and do more work or more exposure of a certain type of um, uh, stimulus in a certain direction. Then you also have to balance too that recovery and also the other elements of training that you need to back off of. So let's say for example, which is very common with say middle distance runners, is they lack and they say, oh, I don't have a kick at the end of a race or I'm just so, you know, everyone's running away from me at the end of the race, right? I need to do more speed work um, so I can be faster at the end. Maybe, and maybe not, right? Maybe actually need to do kind of that, um, you know, 
10% slower than race pace, mid-range reps like repeat Ks at um, you know 3K pace for the 1500 meter runner or repeat miles at a 5K pace for the miler, right? To help kind of just give them a jumpstart or a boost of that type of um, in you know speed endurance, so to speak, and also to the sensation of that tolerance of going at that kind of you know near max speed, you know that VO2 max type speed, if you want to call it a physiological marker, where they're comfortable with being uncomfortable or exposed to this idea of being uncomfortable and sustaining because they might have enough speed, um, foot speed, leg speed, pure speed in them but you might not be getting them close enough to the finish line in a relatively confident or fresh enough state to express that. And that's where sometimes you got to think a little differently too, versus say 10 K runners, they might've been all this volume and mileage and same situation. They can't keep a pace up for the second half of their race. Now, it might be, yeah, they need to do more of these hard, um, you know, mid-length intervals, or their speed reserve might not be high enough. So, and if that speed reserve is not high enough, then that frequency of that power output that you're asking them to sustain for 15, 30 minutes, what have you, it might not be, that expectation might not be realistic because their brain and their motor units don't know how to recruit at a high enough threshold to then be able to sustain this kind of like midline threshold or mid-level threshold for that duration of time. So a lot of times with these resets, what I do is I think of the non-linear relationship or the non-intuitive um, uh, stimulant that the athlete might need exposure to to help advance and jumpstart and give them that confidence more than anything uh, in their next racing performance, because it is just as much psychological as it is physiological, right? If the athlete doesn't have confidence in their ability to compete at a certain threshold, and they might tell you too what type of work they want to do. And as a coach, it might not be exactly what you think, but you still got to include it in the training menu and programming. Because if you just say, no, we're going to do what I'd say to do, then even if they think they need to do more tempo runs or a longer long run or what have you, and they think that that is going to contribute to their uh, racing efficacy and ability down the line, by omitting that, you have one um, stymied their confidence in them in themselves because they don't feel like they're getting this, uh, you know, training um, exposure that they they really feel like they need, and then two. Uh, you're also kind of eroding trust with the athlete because you asked or they expressed their desire and opinion, and then you just completely ignored it and, um, you know, overrode it. And then that starts to just kind of create an unwinding of that relationship as well. So those are things you, you also, as a coach, need to be really sensitive to um, when you kind of get into that, what I call that, that oh shit period. Where the athlete's like, oh shit, I'm not as good, not as good as I thought, or I'm not as competitive as I thought. I'm not as and when people start to freak out because they're really invested, they're highly self-motivated, they want to achieve, you gotta listen to them. Um, otherwise, again, they're gonna do the work and be, you know, good little like obligatory um, 
uh, you know, movement monkeys or fitness monkeys, so to speak. But again, when they, they're not going to feel confident and ready that, okay, I can go do this now when I, when they step on the next starting line. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up that psychology uh, and interaction with the training aspect, because a lot of times what happens is it's all about expectations, right? And our expectations shift as our training does. And a lot of times what happens is we get stuck in a rut because our workouts um, start flattening a little bit and athletes start coming to terms with where they are and what they're capable of. And that improvement in like, let's say a tempo run doesn't come as easily. Right. And then they go searching and they're like, Oh, this is why like I need X. I need this. A lot of times for distance runners, it'll be like, Oh, I need the, the speed work or the speed endurance, whatever you want to call it. And there's a huge psychological component to that. Right. I remember my my high school coach a lot of times and this was this was kind of you know this is what a lot of coaches do but it's it's very smart in the sense that if athletes are running well off of let's say the traditional kind of early season tempo plus some pure sprints then it's great right it's working great if they're not running well yet then you can always go back and say just wait until we do the fast anaerobic stuff because it sets the expectation that you're, oh, it's okay that you're not running well yet because we haven't introduced this other component. So it sets the expectation that once we introduce this component, then you'll be ready to go. And a lot of times it, you know, it, it's a, it's a mix of, yeah, sure. Training wise, they might need that but it's also psychologically setting themselves up in that expectation up. So what does that mean when you're in a rut or you're in this training thing or you're this training rut phase? A lot of times what needs to happen is you, you need to go in the opposite direction of where you've been, right? If you've been doing lots of threshold stuff, do some fast quote unquote anaerobic stuff. If you've, been doing lots of speed endurance stuff, maybe just do some pure speed, pure speed work, right? Or whatever have you in a different direction that you then you've been not only because that new stimulus in the training might jolt you out, but it gives you this psychologically fresh phase where the athlete no longer has these expectations on Okay, I'm going to go do my weekly tempo run, my four miles at 5.10 pace. And if it feels harder than it has over the past five weeks or whatever it has, then that means that I'm, I'm not ready to run. I'm, I'm, you know, going in the wrong direction. If you do something completely novel or completely different, they don't have that expectation on, oh, I'm supposed to run these 470. And if I don't, that means I'm, I'm out of shape. And we're constantly seeking confirmation, right? Especially in periods when things aren't going well. So one thing I also like to do is ask the athlete, what's your favorite workout? What's your go-to workout, right? For some people, it just might be that really simple mile 12, eight, four workout, right? Or maybe for longer runners, three mile, two mile, one mile, you know, or a handful of quarters, right? And sometimes you have to give that confirmation that they're fit. So it's like, all right, 
hey, we're going to do your favorite workout, one that you've done long, you know, a, a lot. Like, let's just say for most people, like the mile 12, 8, 4, a lot of people have familiarity with that. They know what times with what recoveries and what feeling, um, you know, to associate with, you know, quote unquote fitness, right? So then you rest them up a couple days, you know, reduce the, the high sensitivity loads and then just go for it, right? Just say, you just go for it. Um, and that sometimes will be the key tipping point that says, hey, look, I am fit. I am ready to go. And because it's the you've released the expectation of having to run a certain time or having this pressure on this athlete in the racing crucible where they feel like they can't um, mess up and they need to run this mark to qualify or this, this mark to, you know, advance or retain a contract or get a time bonus or whatever. Um, in that safe space, it gives them that aha moment and a little semblance of confidence back. And when they start to get that confidence back, you know, especially if they're already fit and they've done the work is the scenario Steve and I are really talking about here, then they become more um, open to taking risks and races. Because a lot of times with that expectation is a lot of people like to run by the splits, right? And say, I'm going to manufacture this pace, you know, for this long, you know, come hell or high water. And we know that that's not racing. Racing has higher volatility than that, right? Um, it has, you know, Frank Shorter was very famous for saying, oh, yeah, you're always going to have rough patches in the marathon. And it's like you turn a corner and you're in a rough patch. Bill Rogers, same thing. You know, even... I was reading something of like in a, uh, a marathon long time ago when Alberto Salazar was competing, he had a rough patch, a side stitch for 10 miles, like in the New York City Marathon one year when he won it, 10 miles. And he let the rest of the field go. And it was like Bill Dillinger was talking about just how he thought he thought of dropping out every other step. He thought of just being patient. But like, it's amazing. Like, you know, anyone can sustain in side stitches as we know are nasty like that's like basically an hour of tolerating a side stitch. And then it just disappeared out of, you know, literally said I turned a corner and it just, you know, dissolved in thin air. Um, and this was the account Dillinger gave. So when we think about that too, you want to set the athlete up for that confirmation in whatever way, shape or form that they either have the ability they need to meet the, the racing demand, recalibrate the expectation in racing where it's not necessarily time pace, but like competitive base or go for it pace. And then two, remember and talk about this is one of my favorite things when it comes to racing is scenario planning. So a lot of times we have race plans where it's like, I'm going to do exactly X, Y, Z, A, B, C, end of story. Well, you forgot to tell the other, if you're in a track race, 15 if you're in a road race, thousands of other competitors that you're going to do this and everyone has to do it your way because that's not what happens. There, but there's different scenarios you can prepare for that are more going to be uh, if when statements. So if this happens or, or if then statements, if this happens, then I'm going to do this. And the common race scenarios are pretty simple, right? There's fast from the gun. There's the seesaw race where it's like changing a pace all the time. There's slow, sit, and kick. And then the fourth one is binary. It's either, I feel so amazing, everything's perfect, wow, or it's, you know, ugly cousin. Uh, I feel awful, this is so hard, bleh. So those are pretty much 
Steve, let me know if there's a different common race scenario that exists. But those are pretty much it. And if you prep the athlete to say, okay, when you get in the race and you and you um, are in that situation, one of these is going to express as one of these four scenarios. We've discussed how to approach you mentally, tactically, um, and competitively those different scenarios before the race started. So hopefully then you can have a better decision tree and then a more confident decision tree to take the action you need to be successful in that scenario. And, and one of the things that often happens when we get in a rut is we almost prime ourselves for that kind of blah day, right? Because, because we, we, we have this expectation of, oh, I'm not running well. I'm not as fit as I, I should be or could be or supposed to be, et cetera. And we almost prime ourselves so that any indicator whatsoever sends us down that spiral towards the rough blah day. Um, but it's important in preparing your athletes to realize that, and we've all had this experience, that you can run well even if you don't feel good. Right. And there are different things that you can do, different tactics that you can utilize and kind of, you know, force your way through things because, you know, things can can turn around. And if you've coached long enough, you've had athletes be like, oh, my gosh, my legs felt dead, but they still ran well and they still PR. What tends to happen when when we're in when we are in a rut is the moment things don't feel good we spiral out of control and we go towards disaster or bad performance and can't navigate and figure ourselves out, figure our way out. So what that means, okay, what does that mean for you as a coach? It means setting expectations. And then as you just said there, John, is having strategies and plans in place that even if you don't feel good, what are you going to do? How are you going to get through this? How are you going to get get out of this? And this is incredibly important. You know, I'll give you an example from this season, actually, uh, with one of my college kids. At the beginning of the year, you know, his legs didn't feel good going into a race. So he had the right idea. He's like, oh, I need to try something. So what did he do? He went out super fast, which then backfired and didn't work. Uh and he was just like, I was just trying to shock my legs, right? During the race, that first 400 or the 1500, I was supposed to go for it. Or I was just going for it to try and get my legs out. And, you know, he ran, you know, fell apart, ran horribly. But it opened up a conversation of, okay, what do we actually do when our legs don't feel good? So we went through different things on the warm up where it's so like, okay, if your legs don't feel good on the warm up, here's what you can do right? Here's some different tactics you can try. If they still don't feel good, you know, going into the race, does that mean they're not going to feel bad the entire race? No. Here's what, here's the tactic. Instead of going out, you know, super hard, like work your way into it, right? When, and we, you know, the way I got them to buy into this is talked about workouts. I'll be like, you know, when we're doing 400 meter repeats or 300s or whatever have you, Sometimes does that first rep feel rough? Yep, sometimes it does. Does that 
dictate that rep number five or six or seven is going to feel rough? And he's like, no, sometimes I work my way through it. Okay. We'll then take that same approach to racing, right? That first initial, you know, 200 meters might not feel the best and that's okay. But like, you've got to give yourself a chance to come out of it, which means, okay, instead of uh, in embracing this, oh, I feel like crap. I'm going to try and shock myself in the middle of the race. You can either, well, if you think that you need to shock yourself, do it to do it 20 minutes before the race with a hard 200. See if that works. Right. Or in the race, instead of shocking yourself, sit there and be like, OK, I'm going to go out a little bit more conservative and try and work through this and get my legs feeling good or feeling where I can or not even feeling good, but just getting to a point where I can get can stay on this and get through this and hopefully the excitement of racing and the, Hey, I've made it through three quarters of this race will take over. And this athlete, you know, did all these things, changed his mindset. And by the end of the year was running, you know, 10 seconds faster in the 1500, even when his legs didn't feel the best. Mm. Discomfort is not a threat. Discomfort is not a threat. And that's what we have to remember with distance runners. There's, um, I was reading some study recently where one of the key psychological differences between novice or um, semi-professional elite runners and high elite runners, um, you know, high, high, high performers, is the ability to tolerate and withstand larger amounts of discomfort for longer. And we're in a culture where pain's the enemy. Pain's bad. We have to medicate pain. We have to, oh, you got to feel good. You got to feel good on race day. You got to feel fresh. And so as a coach, if you are championing that narrative where the only way to compete at your best is to feel amazing, um, you're kind of uh, a false prophet because the reality is we train to tolerate. We train to be able to buffer different physiological metabolic substrates, right? So the whole point of lactic threshold training, the whole point of acidosis um, training, right? And remind the athlete, like Steve said, like you said, Steve, it was great. It's um, you are prepared to tolerate large amounts of discomfort for long periods of time or, you know, a long, this period of time. Now, you don't want to do what your athlete did, which is like go out you know, warp speed in the first quarter of your race and like burn up all your glycogen stores and then have a, you know, a tough go in the last, you know, third, <laughs> but <laughs> it's getting back in that mindset of like, in order to compete at your best is you don't have to feel your best as Steve, you know, so eloquently said, and you, this happened, I mean, with Tara Walling in 2016 in uh, the 5k, like, so the way her racing calendar and uh, preparation worked was she was going to qualify for Olympic trials in the 5k, you know, at kind of the last possible couple meets possible, just because we want to get her really prepped for the 10k and she was running the roads as well that season. So it was Portland track festival with, you know, the um, uh, final safety net of Stumptown twilight. And she just ran like absolute dog crap at porn track festival, like jog, like it got hard and she copped out and then jogged her way into like a 16, 15. Um, and then I just sat her down. I go, all right, you're fit. I don't care. Like you're going to go right on the rabbit. And when the rabbit drops, you're going to lead the damn thing. 
And worst case scenario, you're going to get a really good workout and you've already qualified for Olympic trials in 10K. So not worry about it. Best case scenario, you qualify in the 15 or 5K as well. What you do, you followed instructions, you know, that tough love, um, you know, put her in a space where it was like, all right, I'm just going to go, go do this and not worry about how I'm going to feel the next lap or the next K. I'm not going to future trip and correlate my current condition to the, the rest of the duration that I have in front of me, you know, being very present and focusing on the present moment, ran a nice PR of 15, 25, 26 qualified Olympic trials. Great. It's that reminder of, you know, again, even though you do all this training and preparation, it doesn't give you the right to feel great on race day. It might happen. And I love when that happens. I love when it feels easy. It feels fast. You run a PR, tailwind's at your back, you win, and everything's great. And we get those moments as coaches and athletes. If you're really lucky, maybe once a season, you know, maybe once every couple years. But the majority of it is just blue collar, grunt work, getting the job done, being professional at what you do, showing up and performing despite all the, you know, adversarial um, elements that are out there fighting against you, your mind, your body, and even the condition and other competitors, right? And when you take that kind of working man approach, so to speak, um, and saying, all right, well, you know, I know it's going to suck. I know it's going to just be like this for, you know, 15 minutes in a 5k or 10k, you know, last 10 minutes in a 5k or pretty much the whole 5k. <laughs> we were kidding. <laughs> or the whole 800. All of a sudden that gives you opens up space for when you if you do feel good, if you do get a gift, the athlete's like, "Oh, awesome. I I felt great for a little while and then that creates some excitement and energy, gives them that permission to risk a little bit more, so on and so forth." And it's a positive self-fulfilling prophecy versus a negative one. Yeah, I think you're you're spot on. You know, I'm reminded of this study they did a couple years ago on cyclists um, where they put people head to head. And what they noticed is they were tracking these these uh, blood parameters and stuff like that. And when one cyclist started to fall off and get dropped big, they, they had like this stress response, right? Cortisol went through the roof, you know, all this stuff. Um, and it that's fascinating to me because it fits into this like spiral towards negativity, right? We can, it, we can either like sit there and have a stress response, freak out and then spiral and be done. Or we can like figure out how to ride that line, navigate through it. And then get excitement instead of like stress. Because the closer we get towards achieving our goal, towards the finish, no matter how we feel, the excitement is going to start taking over for from the discomfort. Because you, you, we've all experienced that in a race, right? Where we're pain, we're suffering, middle of a 5K especially. And then we get to some point, whatever it is, maybe 1,200 to go, maybe 1,000 to go where all of a sudden you start being like, okay, I can do this. I'm on it. I can get there. And it's really bridging that gap to get to that point where the excitement can take over is the key. So we're, we're kind of 
doing what we can to keep that that negative stress response um, at bay so that we don't, you know, spiral towards a freak out long enough so that we can get that excitement of, okay, I'm almost on my goal. I'm accomplishing something, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of that, you know, comes down to like that willingness to take risks, that trying something different, but also that setting expectations appropriately um, so that you can kind of work your way through that, that initial struggle phase. And then also like get yourself excited to compete at the end. Yeah. I think like, you know, closing out this podcast and talking about all the different ways to jumpstart or turn around your racing is finally just, you know, having a consult with the athlete and understanding their relationship to racing. Um, Because the relationship to racing is a much different relationship than it is to training. And um, training is very scripted. Training is very predictable. Training is very flexible in the athlete's favor most of the times racing is not (laughs) racing is none of those things. Uh, and when you sit down and understand the athlete's relationship to racing, whether they view it as a, a positive stress, you know, an e-stress or distress, um, or their expectation is, well, I've done all this training. And so I should be able to run my target pace easily. And, you know, they think there's just going to be a walk in the park with, you know, some cupcakes and um, cookies along the way, or they're really cognizant of the fact like, no, training has just prepared me for the ability to compete at a certain threshold with a high degree of discomfort and endure. And that, I think, is kind of remember what endure means. Endure means to persevere in the face of discomfort. You know, that is when we talk about endurance training, the big difference between, say, sprint training or um, these more quote unquote anaerobic or uh, momentary events in track, like the throws or what have you, where, yeah, they get a rest up and feel good and get hyped up like the, you know, shot putters do and then toss the thing. And then they get a, you know, cool off period. You know, they get a timeout, they get check in with their coach. Hey, how is my technique? No, there's no timeouts in a race, right? So you have to endure and embrace whatever's coming at you, good, bad, or indifferent. And if the athlete is not uh, really aware of that uh, reality and they have a misguided relationship or expectation with racing, then it, that requires a re-education of sorts. Exactly. I think, I think that's kind of what, what we're getting at in this podcast is that if someone gets in a rut, what does that mean? Just like you said, we have to re-educate them both on the psychological side, the expectations, the mindset, and then also on the physiological, the training and the sense of giving them the tools and ability to recover and then the right training stimulus to sustain their fitness without getting in the way of, of um, you know, of performing essentially. So it's, it's this nice interaction between the physiological and the psychological that you need to look at. The one other thing I'd say in summarizing this up, John, is something that you said at the beginning is start with taking this holistic step back um, approach where you're assessing the individual in front of you 
where they're at from the physiological side, where they're at from the psychological side, and that will largely determine what pass, what intervention, and what reframing or re-education needs to be done. 100%. And I think just to piggyback on that, Steve, is a lot of times frustrated coaches will label the athlete at fault as a quote-unquote head case. Oh, I don't know why. They're a head case. And it's easy to fall into that narrative and that trap. But at the end of the day, the athlete is only as good as the training. And that's our job as coaches is to provide guidance and the training that they need most and that has the most value and benefit to them. And training is not always just like Steve and I were talking about this podcast, physical. A lot of it's psychological, mental, and relationship between the physical and the mental and that intersection. So when we think holistic, we always, always have to think about that individual too. And that's the great puzzle that is coaching. And that's why I love this game is because the same person can have a different um, puzzle for you to solve over the course of a season or a career if you work with them long-term. And different athletes have different new puzzles for you to solve as a coach as well. And that's, I think, the approach we have to take is a puzzle. And if you don't feel like you have the tools or the answers, you know, that's why all this education stuff's out there from continuing education courses offered by a variety of institutions, our scholar program. But more importantly, it's why mentors exist. And it's people who might have a little bit more in depth or longer experience than you and why a key part of becoming a good coach is developing a really good mentorship network or peer network of people you can call on and, you know, uh, hash out different ideas and approaches and thoughts and get counsel uh, to help not only the athlete in this type of scenario, but also help you as the coach. So you're better prepared and have a, a different perspective and a valuable perspective to offer future athletes who are going to incur this same frustrating and painstaking reality of racing, you know, uh, not going as well as planned, anticipated, or desired. Couldn't have said it better. If you enjoyed this podcast, you want to join our community, don't forget to check out the Scholar Program always expanding, always trying to bring new insight and bring coaches together. So check that out. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, Don't forget to share it with other coaches, spread the word, review it on Apple if you want to, but more so just keep coming back for more because as long as you come back, we're going to keep giving people what they want. Hey, yeah, I love it.